You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. And no, I don't usually sound like this, but seasonal allergies are hitting me especially hard right now, so sorry. Anyway, we have a somewhat complicated, but hopefully very interesting topic for you today. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops held their spring assembly last week, beginning on Wednesday and wrapping up on Friday. Meetings like this provide an opportunity for the many bishops of the United States to come together to discuss important issues and to vote on topics relevant to the entire U.S. Church. For the second time in a row, the meeting was virtual over Zoom. It's always a challenge, this virtual reality in which we live. (laughs) The bishops normally meet twice a year. And although this meeting was peculiar because it was virtual, it followed largely the same routine as previous years. After an uncustomary debate about the agenda, the meeting kicked off with an address from Archbishop Christophe Pierre. The Frenchman serves as the apostolic nuncio to the U.S., basically like the Vatican's ambassador. No unity can be found except in the truth. This was something affirmed by Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti, namely that dialogue must be related to the truth. The solution is not relativism. Then, an address from the president of the Bishops' Conference, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles. It seems to me that in these times, when society is so divided, the Church has a great duty to more fully reflect the unity that God wants for His creation and His people. Over the course of three days, the bishops advanced the sainthood causes of two Americans. They discussed improvements to the translations of the Liturgy of the Hours of the Breviary and the Order of Penance. They voted in favor of drafting a statement about ministry to Native Americans. They voted to move forward with a three-year Eucharistic revival initiative, all of which was, in its own way, very interesting and very important. But by far, the vote that had the most media coverage, the vote that everyone seemed to be talking about, was a vote on whether to draft a document on Eucharistic coherence, essentially a document laying out the Church's teaching on the Eucharist. The reasons why this topic have been so widely discussed in the news are somewhat obvious, if you've been paying attention. President Joe Biden, as the first Catholic president in nearly 60 years, is the most high-profile Catholic politician in the U.S. in quite some time, and he's been publicly supportive of abortion. Many Catholics, including quite a few bishops, are of the opinion that Biden's positions on certain issues, especially his support for abortion, should exclude him from the reception of Holy Communion at Mass. But not everyone agrees, hence the debate. CNA's politics editor, Matt Hadro, has been covering the workings of the U.S. Bishops' Conference for about five years now. We spoke with him about what Eucharistic coherence is and why it matters. So Matt, this term Eucharistic coherence, where did it come from and what does it mean? The term was actually used in the 2007 document of Latin American and Caribbean bishops, uh, the Aparecida, which then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio had a hand and now Pope Francis had a hand in developing. That document addressed the topic of Eucharistic consistency and talked about the importance of Catholic public officials defending life against evil, such as abortion and euthanasia, and not going along with the legality of such, uh, of such evils. And, uh, you know, Eucharistic consistency, meaning that as Catholics in public life, their lives had to be consistent with church teaching. 
So why are the bishops of the United States taking up this issue now? Since the November elections, uh, there's obviously been a lot of discussion in the public about the matter of communion for pro-abortion politicians. You know, right after the November elections, the bishops formed a special working committee to deal with the incoming administration and areas of agreement and disagreement with the administration. And uh, one of the recommendations of the working group was a teaching document on the Eucharist. And so, you know, this is, um, this is a continuation of that work. So I heard that you got to read a draft outline of the document. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It's a comprehensive document on the Eucharist. It does address worthiness to receive Holy Communion, but it also talks about many other things about the Church's teaching on the Eucharist, such as Sunday being a holy day, the um, Mass being seen as a sacrifice, uh, and, the, and a recovery of seeing it as, as such, the importance of practicing the works of mercy, things like that. The proposed outline of it that has been provided, not calling anybody out by name, uh, it's not making it specifically about politicians and, you know, politicians in communion even. That's kind of a subset of one section of it. And this document has been fairly controversial, right? We've seen individual bishops be releasing statements on on the Eucharist and on uh, on communion. For instance, Bishop Thomas McBrocky in Springfield, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelion in San Francisco, uh, and then in kind of in response, Bishop Robert McElroy in San Diego. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a new topic. It certainly has been talked about a lot more since the election. So this conversation has happened before then? This was discussed a lot uh, back in 2004 when John Kerry was the Democratic presidential nominee, and he was Catholic and he um, was pro-abortion. And the Vatican has actually weighed in on this debate. Last month, the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith actually sent a letter to the U.S. Bishops' Conference about this topic. Is that kind of thing out of the ordinary? Well, again, you know, back in 2004, then Cardinal Ratzinger, he sent the memo to then Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, and it was meant to be a message to the U.S. bishops, you know, outlining in detail the application of canon law to admission to Holy Communion. Uh, and it was a very clear process that, uh, you know, a very detailed process that he outlined. So uh, as far as the Vatican weighing in on these matters, uh, you know, it's not, it's not unprecedented. We've seen it before. And uh, as Cardinal Ratzinger said, you know, there's an application of canon law. Uh, canon law teaches that the Catholic who is in public life, who is participating in manifest grave sin and is obstinately doing so, is not to approach to receive the Eucharist. So, spoiler alert, the bishops did vote to move forward with the drafting of this document. So what happens next? There could be possibly a, a final text that could be presented at the fall meeting that they would vote on. Um, you know, so that's, uh, I think that would kind of be the course of events there. Cool. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us, Matt. Again, that was Matt Hadro, CNA's politics editor. At the end of the day Thursday, the virtual floor opened up for bishops to debate and comment on the drafting of a document about the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the church. All told, about 40 bishops made interventions about the document in a debate that lasted nearly three hours. I speak in support, enthusiastic support, of the drafting of a formal statement on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the church. I would just like to speak in favor of this document. It seems to me this is a, an unprecedented situation in the country. We've never had a situation like this where the executive is uh, a Catholic president who is opposed to a, a 
to the teaching of the church. I, I'm in favor of this uh, moving ahead with uh, the, the drafting of this. I am listening carefully. I'm not yet on board with this. I cannot support this measure the way it's outlined. I think we have to to take time to do this right. I really like the idea of having a document to take a look at so we can actually start having dialogue on something specific. Once we legitimate public policy-based Eucharistic exclusion as a regular part of our teaching office, and that is the road to which we are headed, we will invite all of the political animosities that so tragically divide our nation into the very heart of the Eucharistic celebration. Um, I think we have a, a unique opportunity to speak on the truth and beauty and goodness of the Holy Eucharist. We need to, to, to say something clear. I strongly support the document. I think it's the right approach. Uh, those who advocate for abortion no longer talk in the language of choice. They talk about it as a right. And this is a Catholic precedent that's doing this the most aggressive thing we've ever seen in terms of this attack on life when it's most innocent. Which will inevitably be seen as partisan in the current ecclesial and public context of division. Already at this point, we have lost the narrative in terms of the media. All they're reporting on in any discussion of this is this little section on Eucharistic consistency. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that at all. What is this document intended to do? We are not in a place to be composing this document, drafting this document without the ability to have the serene and extensive discussion that is called for by Cardinal Ladaria. We need to spend time, personal time, in candid, straightforward conversation together to seek to advance any statement prior to the serene and necessary discussion that needs to predate such a document would further damage the unity upon which a successful document fundamentally depends. This is a document that can actually give a synthesis that would allow us to discuss not only the Eucharist, uh, the, the liturgy and the Eucharist celebrated and believed, but then allow it to say something about the Eucharist lived. I will welcome the uh, foundational document. Our people are counting on us for a voice of clarity, pastoral patience, and charity in the midst of so much confusion. We cannot ignore the circumstances in which we currently are. And I think we need to proceed as we have been today with good dialogue directed towards uh, the great gift of inestimable value that we've been given in the Eucharist. I will not be supporting uh, the proposed document. I'm hearing a lot of apprehension and a lot of fear, perhaps, as to what this document might contain. I think uh, the Lord is calling us to uh, to trust. I think the Lord is calling us to, to trust that He is with us, that He's guiding us. We will have ample opportunity, my brothers, to to parse this document, to, to modify this document, to amend this document. Our people uh, need to hear from us. I don't see this as political, but I rather I see this as pastoral. I also want to speak in favor of moving forward with this document. There seems to be a rush to this, and I don't think the Holy Spirit traditionally works that quickly, and certainly the Roman Catholic Church doesn't. This call for dialogue Sometimes I wonder if the dialogue is meant not truly to listen, but to, but to delay. Almost daily, I speak with people, Catholics, laity, who are confused by the fact that we have a president 
who professes devout Catholicism and yet advances the most radical pro-abortion agenda in our history. And that leaves them concerned and confused. And I think they're looking for some direction, some teaching from any effort by this conference to move in support of the categorical exclusion of Catholic political leaders from the Eucharist based on their public policy positions will thrust the bishops of our nation into the very heart of the toxic partisan strife, which has distorted our own political culture and crippled meaningful dialogue. I, too, am in favor of this document, and I do think it is very timely. That last voice you heard was San Francisco's Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione. He was among the most vocal supporters of a document on Eucharistic coherence in the months leading up to last week's meeting. He issued a pastoral letter on the topic in May. This has been on my mind for a long time because of Catholics in public life who are giving a counter witness to fundamental values and rights. The pastoral letter I issued had been on my mind for a long time and is, was in the works for a long time for almost a year, really, in its development. So I knew that the time had come that uh, I needed to do something more public about it. The problem of Eucharistic coherence isn't a new one. Over the years, many bishops have highlighted the Church's teaching that those obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. And given the gravity of the sin of abortion, Catholic politicians who work to expand abortion access have been a main focus of those discussions. We were having the debate almost 20 years ago now when John Kerry was running for president, and it was a high-profile issue then. And now, I think with the election of President Biden, it's gained more urgency and more attention. But it's certainly it's been around for a long time, and it kind of it emerges as a kind of high-profile issue, and then it kind of wanes a little bit, and it's been going kind of back and forth like that for a while. But I think under the current administration and the, some of the policies that President Biden is promoting that are very problematic for Catholics, it's gained more urgency. You saw how now in the latest budget, there's no provision for the Hyde Amendment. So now the door is open for the government to actually pay for killing babies in their mother's wounds. So it's become more and more aggressive as time goes along. So that principle is more pertinent today than ever. Bishop Thomas Olmsted of Phoenix was also a very vocal proponent of a document on Eucharistic coherence. He's written several apostolic exhortations on the Eucharist, including one that was published in April. I know in my own case, it came from getting a feeling that many of our Catholics have a poor understanding of the Eucharist. So I felt there was a real need to address that. I mean, it's the, it's the great treasure and center of our faith. And it, it seemed as if there was really a great need to, to recover that sense of and to, as, as the bishop, to lift up clearly that the church is teaching about the Eucharist, some of the mysteries within it, which, which you know, we don't fully understand, but we can at least kind of stand in awe and gratitude for what the great blessing that it is. A 2019 study by the Pew Research Center found that just 31% of surveyed U.S. Catholics believe that the bread and wine used in the Eucharist through a process called transubstantiation become the body and blood of Jesus. That means 69% or more than two-thirds of surveyed Catholics reported that they believe the bread and wine used during the Eucharist are only symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Olmsted said he worries the coronavirus pandemic has only worsened misunderstandings about the real presence in the Eucharist. As the bishop, I had to 
with my my team, of course, leaders here in the diocese, we had to help our parishes and our schools negotiate how to deal with this in a way that was safe and, and healthy. But it seemed to me that uh, our people maybe knew more about social distancing than they did about the real presence. And it's, it's frustrating when, as a bishop, you're the highest priority seemed to be taking a back seat somewhat because we did have to be concerned about the health and welfare of of the vulnerable and the elderly and that kind of thing but we never want that in any way to to take away from from the great great blessing that the eucharist is and also because we we gave a dispensation from the obligation that could be misunderstood at times as, as saying it's really not that important it's not an essential thing for our catholic faith so it seemed to me that there were many questions that could have been risen in people's minds and hearts that I needed to address. The Diocese of Phoenix will lift the dispensation from Sunday Mass on July 1st. Opponents of a document on Eucharistic coherence have said that the discussion is politicizing the Eucharist. But Cordelioni said his concern has always been pastoral, not political. He leads the home diocese of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is Catholic and an outspoken advocate for abortion. Pelosi actually doubled down on her support for abortion at a press conference, the same day the bishops debated the document on Eucharistic coherence. A reporter asked Pelosi if an unborn baby at 15 weeks is a human being. Let me just say that I am a big supporter of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I am a mother of five children in six years. I think I have some standing on this issue as to respecting a woman's right to choose. Is it a human being? Yes. Yes, ma'am. To say that those who are trying to protect babies and protect the Blessed Sacrament are doing for political motives are basically claiming to read their minds and know what their motives are. There are, I've said this before, there are non-political pastoral arguments for applying church discipline in this situation, and there are non-political pastoral arguments for refraining from applying it. So those who say that those who want think it should be applied in some circumstance are doing it for political motive, well, it can also be said that those who don't want to apply it are doing so for a political motive. That's not the consideration. The consideration is always the salvation of souls and to prevent the scandal. For Olmsted, too, the concern has always been pastoral. I don't know exactly what's meant by politicizing. I, I try to speak as a pastor of souls. I've written several apostolic exhortations, and I always address it to my um, sons and daughters, my brothers and sisters of the Diocese of Phoenix. That's who I'm the pastor of souls for especially. Now, I do have a, an obligation in union with my brother bishops beyond here, but that's, I feel like the more I focus on, on serving well here, especially in teaching, that those teachings can reach beyond here as well. Bishop Olmsted said the concept of worthiness to receive Holy Communion goes hand in hand with a true understanding of what the Eucharist is. I'm really struck by the fact that in the liturgy, that the first thing we begin with is the confidior, the priest says, let us call to mind our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the Eucharist. So we begin by an awareness of our sinfulness to prepare for the Eucharist. And then just before receiving communion, we use the words from sacred scripture that were actually by a pagan centurion 
Lord, no, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. But we've used those all the way down through history. And there's beautiful hymns written about, Lord, I'm not worthy. It seems to me that it links closely with with what our faith calls us to, which is a deep kind of amazement and awe and wonder of Christ being with us through the, the bread of life and the cup of salvation. And I think that's a, that's a, something that we've kind of um, forgotten about. And I think for many people that uh, it's just sort of automatic. Everybody gets up and goes to communion. It's kind of expected. Bishop Thomas Paprocki leads the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois. There first should be that examination of conscience. And then if somebody, because of their, the, the, I'm not talking about judging their soul. I'm talking about how their, their external actions, if they're living in a way or you know, holding positions that are contrary to church teaching, then the minister of communion has to deny them the sacrament. But Bishop Paprocki said the determination of worthiness to receive Holy Communion is first left to the judgment of the individual Catholic. I think the first issue was for the communicant himself or herself to examine their conscience. And uh, if they're conscious of great sin, they shouldn't go to communion. But if the individual Catholic doesn't make that examination of conscience, then it's left to the minister of the sacrament to not admit them to communion. Bishop Paprocki noted that the law of the church, or canon law, flows from the church's theology. The church has always taken to heart the principles laid out by St. Paul in Corinthians. If you are conscious of sin, you, you, know, you, should be, you should not present yourself for Holy Communion, otherwise you're eating and drinking condemnation about yourself. We, we call that sacrilege. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a long-standing Catholic principle is that you should not receive Holy Communion in the state of mortal sin. Otherwise, you're committing the, the sin of sacrilege. The law, is, the law is already there. In fact, I would argue, as a canon lawyer, we don't need any policy or norms for the United States. We already have canons 915 and 916. The problem is uh, that they're not being enforced, and part of the problem why they're not being enforced is perhaps they're not understood even by some bishops. Another consideration in this discussion is the kingship of Christ and how it relates to Catholics in public life. Here's Bishop Olmsted of the Diocese of Phoenix again. When we think of kingship, John Paul II used to like to link kingship with freedom. The, the kingly virtue is, is that you're free from fear and free from things that keep you from doing what's right. So I would hope that the kingship that comes to us, our share in the Christ as priest, prophet, and king, and in, in from baptism, all of us share in that, that it'll give us this deeper sense of freedom to gladly hand on our faith and defend our faith and promote our faith. Catholics in political life, all sectors of public life, but especially political life, have to have regard for the basic values that come to us from the gospel about respect for human life in every condition, in every stage. The kingship of Christ means that he is the one who rules over us. He has dominion over us. And so our society, if it's going to reflect his kingdom, has to be one that affirms human dignity. And that goes across the political spectrum. After the break, we'll hear from the bishops in their own words. Stay with us. Smart speakers help with a lot these days. 
Did you know you can use your smart speaker to hear the top stories of the day from a Catholic perspective? On Google Home, all you have to do is walk up to your speaker and say, Hey Google, play Catholic News. Here's the latest news. Welcome to your Catholic Daily News Briefing. If you have an Alexa, it's pretty much the same. Just say, Alexa, open Catholic News. Welcome back to the latest news from Catholic News Agency. Go to catholicnewsagency.com slash smart speakers for more information. In the end, the bishops voted to move forward with the drafting of a formal document on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the Church. The vote was 168 bishops voting in favor, 55 voting against, and 6 abstaining. Within hours of the vote, President Joe Biden said in a press conference that he didn't think the bishops would deny him and other pro-abortion politicians communion. The Catholic bishops are moving on this resolution that would prevent you and and others who've um, supported abortion from receiving communion. Are you concerned about the rift in the Catholic Church, and how do you feel personally about that? That's a private matter, and I don't think that's going to happen. Thank you. And later that day, 60 House Democrats issued a statement claiming that the denial of Holy Communion to pro-abortion politicians is a weaponization of the Eucharist. Archbishop Cordelioni said he was surprised by the reaction. I thought it might with a few, but I didn't think it would be to this degree where where 60 of them would issue a letter such as this. It's important to understand that the document would not represent a national policy for U.S. bishops. Instead, Cordelioni said the document should empower bishops to act within their individual diocese. I see this as a document as a resource. I mean, we've issued documents before. We issued our own uh, pastoral statement on Catholics and political life. We issued a pastoral letter on worthiness to receive communion. How are they they were called to a supper back in 2006. So it's it's yet another document, but it will be doctrinally rich, theologically comprehensive. So I see it as a resource for bishops in discerning how to best apply church teaching and discipline within the circumstances of their own diocese. And a document such as this will enable them to do so with some safeguards that they're not stepping out of the boundaries of uh, harmony with his brother bishops in the conference. Bishop Paprocki said he hopes the document will foster a stronger, more united front among U.S. bishops on the topic of the Eucharist and reception of Holy Communion. I hope we move past the, um, the statement that we had on Catholics and political life in 2004, where basically left it up to each bishop. And so we've got the situation now where I think some bishops have already said that they would give, and they are giving communion to President Biden, and then uh, others have said they they would not. He said he believes debate is the first step toward true unity among the bishops. If there is uh, a difference of opinion over these things, it doesn't help to sort of uh, uh, whitewash them and uh, pretend that they don't exist. So that would be kind of a false unity also, the way to resolve differences is simply to hash them out. I mean, if you look at the early Christian church, when they were still, you know, the early Christians didn't have the defined dogmas the way we have today of uh, 
let's say the uh, you know Jesus uh, and being true God and true man, they they hashed that out uh, for uh, a couple of centuries uh, until they figured that out and and, and, and arrived at the. Uh, the definition of uh, Christ as being true God and true man that we we have today, and it would not have helped if somebody said, "Oh, gee, that's a, a divisive issue. We shouldn't talk about it." I firmly believe that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life in Christ. That's very clearly taught over and over in the Second Vatican Councils, in the Catechism, and all of our teaching. So. Uh, any discussion about the Eucharist, even if it seems like it's a debate that, that gets somewhat difficult or heated, if we're focusing on and, des- and desiring and, and, and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to deepen our appreciation of that, I think it's good for us. I think, you know, the patristic times in the church, there were serious debates happening among bishops. And we have from that some very great teaching uh, that, that we still very much profit by in, in the church. So I hope. I hope it will will bring about a deeper love of Jesus in the Eucharist. It'll impel us to this deeper sense of amazement at Jesus' loving presence through the Eucharist with us, and and it'll make us want to to share this faith with others. That will become more missionary in our in our in our hearts and desiring to share this great gift with others. The bishops said they also found a lot of hope and encouragement in a three-year Eucharistic revival initiative which will include catechesis about the Eucharist on a diocesan level and a Eucharistic Congress held in 2024. Bishop Andrew Cousins, an auxiliary of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, presented on the initiative at the meeting last week. What is our goal? To renew the church by enkindling a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. We hope to impact the church at every level over the next three years, starting in the summer of 2022. What's our vision? We want to see a movement of Catholics across the United States healed, converted, formed, and unified by an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist and sent out in mission for the life of the world. We hope that at the end of these three years, we will have formed and sent more than 100,000 missionaries who are ready to share the love of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist with our world. There's honestly a lot more we could say about the Eucharistic Revival Project, and there's a link in our show notes to read more about the initiative. Archbishop Cordelioni said he hopes the initiative will bring about revival in other parts of the Christian life as well. This is a very critical moment in the Church right now. It's kind of a convergence of a number of things with the declining Catholic belief in the real presence and understanding of the Eucharist. We're emerging from COVID. We have the challenge of bringing people back to church and to the Mass. And we have a lack of also Catholics' commitment to the consistent ethic of life. So I'm hoping that with all of this coming together now, it's it's a great challenge, but also a great opportunity to revive the faith of Catholics and so they understand this consistency of their reverence for the Blessed Sacrament and reverence for the sanctity of human life in every stage and condition. Pray for your bishops. There are there are many factors bishops have to take into consideration in making these very delicate decisions, and uh, often they cannot be seen by everyone. <laughs> we hear from a lot of people <laughs> with a lot of different perspectives. So um, just pray for us that we might be guided by uh, God's wisdom, and He'll give us the strength to do what is right. 
If you want to learn more about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, just check out episode 98 of our podcast, which we released a couple weeks ago. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, Jonah McCone, and I just want to apologize again for my voice. Thanks for sticking around. I produce and edit this show with the help of our executive producer, Kate Oliveira. A very special thanks this week to Matt Hadro, Archbishop Cordelioni, Bishop Olmsted, Bishop Paprocki, and Bishop Cousins. You can check out catholicnewsagency.com for more coverage of the Bishop's Spring Meeting. And be sure to subscribe to CNA Newsroom if you haven't already, and leave us a rating and a review. See you next week.